0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, has died. He was 91 years old and died of a long-term illness this afternoon. A group suggests who should look at Trump's Mar-a-Lago documents, but all of the candidates seem to be against Trump. Alleged political bias in the FBI. A top agent reportedly resigned after multiple allegations. A former agent tells us how this could affect the bureau. President Biden today flipped the script on defund the police, his message on crime in the GOP and reactions from Republicans. And the recent push from gun control groups, pension funds and some state lawmakers. They're calling on credit card companies to track the purchases of firearms. 1,200 scientists and professionals have signed a declaration stating that there is no climate emergency. NTD speaks with one of the scientists who signed the document. And one of baseball's most hallowed records is in jeopardy as Yankees star Aaron Judge has now hit 50 home runs with still 33 games to go. The last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, has died at the age of 91. That's according to Russian media, citing a hospital in Moscow. The hospital said Gorbachev died this afternoon after a severe and prolonged illness. Gorbachev was the General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party and President of the Soviet Union from 1985 to 1991. During his rule, he introduced political and economic reforms that eventually led to the fall of the Soviet Union. On December 25, 1991, Gorbachev resigned as the president of the Soviet Union, marking the end of communist rule and of the Cold War. And over to former President Trump's special master request. A law group has suggested candidates for the role, but none of them seem to favor Trump. NTD's Arlene Richards reports.
1: A district court judge said she's likely to appoint a special master like former President Trump requested. He wants a third party to look at the documents that the FBI took from his Mar-a-Lago home. On Monday, a group called National Security Counselors sent the list of recommended candidates. Their letter says it's bringing four uniquely qualified experts in the field to your attention for your consideration. Three of the four are known for praising President Biden, and one just doesn't like Trump. I asked Jim Burling at Pacific Legal Foundation if sending the list was appropriate.
2: It's quite unusual. I haven't seen this before. Uh, there's nothing particularly wrong about it. You can file anything you want with a judge, and the judge can either pay attention to it or completely ignore it.
1: One of the candidates, Heidi Katrosser, a law professor at Northwestern University, has been vocally anti-Trump for years, says the Epoch Times. What happens if the judge selects Catrosser?
2: Both sides can object to it, and they can also point out the fact that if one of the proposed judges um, has any bias, uh, that's ground for disqualification under the federal code. And if a proposed special master has expressed certain bias or hostility to one of the parties, uh, that would be completely inappropriate for that potential person to be appointed special master.
1: Why would this group suggest people who don't favor Trump?
2: Based on who was in the list and the sort of things they said about President Trump in the past, I I think they're kidding. I I think this is a a big joke to them.
1: Meanwhile, the Justice Department wants to submit a 40-page response, double the usual length. Berling explains why.
2: They may be using some of that extra time more than what you normally have to discuss the law, to go into a great amount of detail about the law of privilege, about the law of security and secure documents and top-secret documents, some things that the judge in this case probably is not particularly familiar with. Berling
1: said both sides will want a fair and neutral person with a great deal of expertise in privileged documents and national security issues. Arlene Richards, NTD News,
0: New York. A top FBI agent has reportedly resigned after allegations of political bias. A former FBI agent told our reporter how this might affect the bureau and its investigations.
3: Multiple news outlets report that top-level FBI agent Timothy Tebow resigned from the bureau last week. That's after criticism from Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who said Thiebaud showed political bias in his investigations. On Tuesday, Grassley responded to Tebow's reported resignation, saying this type of bias in high-profile investigations casts a shadow over all the bureau's work that he was involved in, and that the effort to revive the FBI's credibility can't stop with his exit. In July, Grassley accused Tebow of purposely marking evidence against Hunter Biden as disinformation, and then placing it in a restricted access file. FBI Director Christopher Wray was asked about Tebow's alleged bias earlier this month. He said the FBI wants to gather all information so they can go after such conduct. Mark Ruskin is a former FBI agent and the author of the book, The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI. He says he doesn't believe that the evidence against Hunter Biden is misinformation and says the FBI should renew the investigation.
2: And now it'll be under, careful scrutiny not just from within the FBI, but also from uh, from Congress and the Senate.
3: So how does this affect public opinion of the Bureau? Can Americans trust the Bureau and their other investigations, for example, into former President Trump? Ruskin says Thibault's scandal could actually help the FBI renew trust.
2: If the investigation now can go forward without any ideological uh, interference, then it's a very positive development and it will, it will renew trust of the FBI by the public.
3: But Ruskin says it's also possible that the FBI just used Tebow as a scapegoat, as he was already in retirement age. NTD reached out to the FBI to confirm that Tebow resigned, but the bureau said they don't comment on personal matters. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News.
0: And President Biden reversed the defund the police slogan today. This as we're now 10 weeks away from the midterms and the president eyes a primetime speech in just a few days. NTD's Iris Tau has more. I'm opposed
4: to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. With 10 weeks until the midterms, President Biden traveled on Tuesday to the swing state of Pennsylvania, defending his record on crime and vowing to fund the police.
5: When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police, it's fund the police.
4: And Biden's housed the recent passage of a gun control bill while continuing to press Congress to ban so called assault weapons.
5: I'm determined to ban assault weapons in this country.
4: Determined. He's also urging Congress to spend around $37 billion on his Safer America plan, which includes hiring 100,000 new cops. Meanwhile, a poll this month shows an 11-point advantage for Republicans on the issue of crime, which was the worst issue for Democrats in the poll. And Biden taking the opportunity to attack the GOP, citing the fallout of the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid. Now it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI. For God's sake, whose side are you on? The Tuesday remarks come after Biden earlier this week accused Trump-allied Republicans of semi-fascism a message Republicans say directly contradicts Biden's own vow to restore unity. And the Republican National Committee blasted Biden's Tuesday trip, writing, quote, Biden Democrats want to release criminals on the streets and raise taxes, and that Pennsylvanians will be voting for a new direction in November. And in the upcoming days, Biden will make two more visits to the battleground state of Pennsylvania as his party fights to retain control of the Congress. On Thursday, Biden is expected to give a rare primetime speech on what the White House calls a battle for the soul of the nation. Reporting in Washington, D.C.,
0: Iris Tao, NTD News. And it's not just the president urging more gun control measures this week. There's been a recent push from gun control groups pension funds, and New York state lawmakers. They all want credit card companies to track firearm purchases and report suspicious activity. Earlier today, I spoke with Mark Meckler, the president of Convention of States Action and co-founder of Tea Party Patriots, for his views. Mark Meckler, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us.
6: Good to be with you today.
0: Now, there's a push for credit card companies to flag certain purchases of firearms. In an effort to reduce shootings. But some people worry that that could infringe on constitutional rights. What's your take on that?
6: Uh, Well, most certainly, it's an outrageous infringement upon privacy and liberty. I mean, clearly, we have a protected Second Amendment right, as recently reaffirmed multiple times by the United States Supreme Court, to keep and bear arms. And the idea that they would try to do an end run around this by limiting our ability to conduct financial transactions for firearms and ammunition is pretty outrageous and very scary.
0: The NRA recently told The Gothamist that they worry that this kind of system could create a kind of national registration of gun ownership, which could be used to take away people's guns. How concerned are you about that?
6: Yeah, I'M VERY CONCERNED ABOUT THAT. ANY TIME YOU START CREATING LISTS OF PEOPLE WHO ARE MAKING GUN OR AMMUNITION PURCHASES AND MAKING THOSE LISTS AVAILABLE TO THE AUTHORITIES, YOU DO HAVE THE BEGINNING OF BOTH A GUN AND AN AMMUNITION REGISTRY OF THOSE WHO PURCHASE AND OWN THOSE uh, MATERIALS.
0: AND HOW LIKELY IS IT OR WHAT'S THE RISK THAT THIS COULD BE USED TO TAKE AWAY THE GUNS OF LAW-ABIDING CITIZENS?
6: I THINK THE RISK IS VERY HIGH, BECAUSE WE'VE HEARD EVERYBODY FROM THE PRESIDENT ON DOWN, BETO O'ROURKE, A GUBERNATORIAL CANDIDATE, A ONE-TIME SENATE CANDIDATE HERE IN TEXAS, AND MANY OTHERS, MANY GUN CONTROL GROUPS ACROSS THE COUNTRY TALKING ABOUT REMOVING A VARIETY OF TYPES OF FIREARMS FROM THE HANDS OF LAW-ABIDING CITIZENS. SO HAVING THE LIST IS THE FIRST STEP TO ACTUALLY TRYING TO REMOVE THOSE THINGS.
0: DO YOU THINK IT'S POSSIBLE THAT BANKS COULD BE USED AGAINST THE PEOPLE FOR POLITICAL REASONS?
6: Oh, certainly. We've already seen that. We've already seen some of the credit card providers restricting the types of firearms and ammunition purchases that they'll support, not providing merchant services to businesses that supply those sorts of things. So I do believe the goal ultimately is to use the same sort of power against consumers. And the financial power is pretty extreme nowadays because you've got to have banking services in order to conduct these kinds of purchases and, frankly, in order to live in our society. So the power to control how we conduct these transactions is very powerful indeed.
0: And how far do you think this kind of control could go?
6: Well, look, if you look at the intent of every totalitarian state in history, one of the things that they do is try to disarm the citizens. So they set limits and they're claiming very high limits on ammunition or firearms purchases. The reality is some types of firearms are very expensive. Some types of ammunition are very expensive. It might be one gun and the government is being notified of that purchase so i think this is sets a very dangerous precedent
0: proponents of this change say that banks may have more information that a community just may not have before a shooting takes place in order to stop this kind of thing taking place what's your view on that
6: yeah i think banks uh, have all kinds of private information on us as do your doctor and your psychologist that doesn't give them THE RIGHT TO PROVIDE IT TO AUTHORITIES ON A SUSPICION. WE BELIEVE IN DUE PROCESS IN THIS COUNTRY, WHICH MEANS THE ACTIVITY HAS TO BE SOMETHING THAT LOOKS LIKE YOU'RE INVOLVED IN THE COMMISSION OF A CRIME, NOT SIMPLY THAT YOU'RE DOING SOMETHING THAT MIGHT BE, QUOTE, UNQUOTE, SUSPICIOUS.
0: SO WHAT DO YOU THINK SHOULD HAPPEN GOING FORWARD TO PROTECT PEOPLE'S RIGHTS AND PROTECT THEIR SAFETY?
6: Well, I just don't think that the the government should be involved in trying to get this kind of information from credit card companies. I think citizens should widely reject it. I think if you have a credit card and you've been told that your credit card company is going to provide this sort of information, you should think about switching credit card companies. The problem is there's a limitation on the number of credit card companies out there. Right now, what we're experiencing is widespread collusion between commercial interests, large companies, and the government to limit the rights of free citizens in the United States of America And I think we ought to push back against that quite strongly.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Mark Meckler, President of the Convention of States.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: And on the environment, 1,200 scientists and professionals have signed a declaration stating that there's no climate emergency. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with one of them.
5: Some scientists continue to warn of a climate emergency, such as in this video posted by The Economist. In your day-to-day
3: life, it may not seem significant, but three degrees of global warming would be catastrophic. (laughs) Environmentalist Bill
5: McKibben said this. And we're not going to stop global warming. That,
2: unfortunately, is off the menu at this point. But we can, we think, still stop it short of the place where it cuts civilizations off at the knees.
5: President Biden also addressed the issue recently. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. But others say the world is not ending um, contrary to what they believe. Sterling Burnett is the director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy. He's one of 1,200 scientists and professionals who signed a World Climate Declaration, stating there is no climate emergency. He spoke about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which is under the United Nations. He said they produce reports, and much of the body of their research is good. Before they produce them, though, they they produce a summary. It's called a Summary for Policymakers. And the policymakers, this is where the politicians get, get, get in the mud there and start mucking it up. They get in there and they rewrite it. They basically say, no, we're going to de-emphasize that because it's not alarming. He went on to say that one can agree with the IPCC research, but not agree with the summary for policymakers. To him, the data doesn't show a climate catastrophe. We reached out to the IPCC for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. You can view the declaration at c-l-i-n-t-e-l Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: In Jackson, Mississippi, residents already dealing with flooded streets are now also faced with a failing water system. The problem is due to issues at the main water treatment facility. Governor Tate Reeves urged people not to drink city water. He's declared a state of emergency for Jackson and ordered the creation of an incident command center to distribute clean water.
2: Until it is fixed, it means
7: we do not have reliable running water at scale. It means the city
2: cannot produce enough water to fight fires, to reliably flush toilets, and to meet other critical needs.
0: The state will help distribute water to up to 180,000 people as crews work to get the water treatment plant up and running. The city operates the area's two water treatment plants, the OB Curtis plant, which treats 50 million gallons per day, and the JH Fuel plant, whose normal production of 20 million was increased to 30 million gallons. Because water pressure dropped system-wide, officials could not guarantee running water, and they didn't know how many homes were affected. In the meantime, Jackson Public Schools said they would shift to online learning starting today. And coming up, California, one step closer to regulating what doctors can and cannot say about COVID-19 and its vaccines as state lawmakers pass a new bill on COVID misinformation. And a car-stealing challenge goes viral on TikTok, causing problems for car owners and police. Which brands are getting hit worst? More here soon on NTD News.
3: This is Lee Smith from Over the Target. I'm here to announce a brand new show available only on Epoch TV, and that's Over the Target Live, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. For an hour each Thursday, starting at 9, we'll be speaking with guests live, and I'll be taking questions from you live as well, touching on all the themes, topics, subjects, and issues that Over the Target is known for, from foreign policy and national security to this, our great American life. I'll look forward to seeing you soon, and I'll look forward to hearing from you soon too. Thursday nights at 9 for Over the Target Live. I'm Lee Smith. Thanks.
0: Welcome back. In California, the state Senate passed a bill yesterday that would punish medical professionals for spreading what lawmakers defined as COVID-19 misinformation and disinformation. The bill applies specifically to information relating to the nature of the virus and the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. If the bill is signed into law, California will become the first state to punish medical professionals for what they say about COVID-19. They could face disciplinary action from the California Medical Board or the state's Osteopathic Medical Board, including having their licenses suspended or revoked. The bill defines misinformation as a false information that is con- contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. It defines disinformation as misinformation that li- a licensee deliberately disseminates with malicious intent or an intent to mislead. And last week, three California courts ruled against Governor Gavin Newsom's COVID lockdown orders. In the separate cases, state courts have ruled that the government may have overstepped its authority. NTD's Daniel Hall reports.
8: In a span of seven days, three California courts ruled in favor of both the people of California and the United States Constitution in three groundbreaking cases. The courts ruled that the state government may have overreached its power following Governor Gavin Newsom's COVID shutdown orders and mandates. I would say that
6: these most recent rulings, the three that did rule in favor of private businesses, absolutely are respecting the rule of law and the Constitution of the United States.
8: Alexander Haberbush, a constitutional attorney, says each suit needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. When you refer to a mandate, generally
6: what that refers to is an order from somebody who's higher in the government to somebody beneath them in government. What we saw here was a proliferation of mandates that applied not against just government personnel, but against
8: we the people. Each of the three cases had its own significance. The first ruling highlighted the freedom of religion in the San Jose Calvary Chapel.
9: What's so unique about this is California courts have generally been leaning in favor of the government. But to have three cases within seven days of each other all going against the governor, uh, that is a really good sign that the courts are starting to uh, really focus in on the constitutional rights of the individuals and start uh, finding where those limits are of where just how far a government can go under emergency powers.
8: Mark Moyer, a candidate for California's U.S. Senate seat and also a constitutional attorney, explains the church refused to shut down after Governor Newsom's order. A local judge then sanctioned the church and ordered a $190,000 fine. The other two cases involved local businesses directly impacted by shutdown orders. The state tried to get the cases dismissed, but the judges allowed them to proceed.
9: One is out of Orange County, uh, the luxury nail uh, salon. They filed what's called a Government Tort Claims Act, basically saying the statute says if the government commandeers my property because of the governor's emergency orders, you have to pay me back.
8: Moiser said that the nail salon argues that they are entitled to compensation, alleging Newsom chose which businesses were allowed to stay open.
9: If the governor decides to make decisions of you're open and you're not open, those businesses that are shut down May have a claim against the government
8: saying Tinhorn Flats, a restaurant in Burbank, publicly questioned the constitutionality of the governor's COVID shutdowns. The city then sued the restaurant. In response, the eatery countersued both the city and the governor, claiming violations against their First Amendment rights. Additionally, during the state's eviction moratorium, the government allowed Tinhorn Flats landlord to evict their business. Moisier says once the final decisions are made in these cases, the result could deter the governor from using emergency powers in the future. The pending lawsuits are set to begin discovery within the coming months. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California.
0: And in response to the vaccine mandates, a group of frontline workers across the nation is forming a coalition. Part of their objective is, they say, to restore their liberties. A group of firefighters,
10: nurses and police officers launched the National Coalition of Frontline Workers last week in Washington, D.C. The group says it's unprecedented to have frontline workers spanning multiple disciplines coming together with one goal.
11: And our call to action, is simple. We, we call to end the national emergency, excuse me, a national emergency immediately and to end all COVID mandates. And we really need to join, to everybody to join together frontline workers from across the country and join us in our efforts to restore and preserve our liberties.
10: That's one of the trustees of the coalition, Kimberly Overton, a registered nurse. She says she's focusing on providing compassionate care for those injured by the vaccine.
11: So it is um, one of our goals with this organization to um, create a vaccine injury database and to be able to begin uh, providing concierge nursing services and hopefully some, some other uh, incredible benefits that are going to support that community uh, the vaccine injured.
10: She notes that the vaccine injured are often ignored or even ridiculed. On its website, the CDC says reactions are rare and comments the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination continue to outweigh any potential risks. The coalition says it is not-for-profit and nonpartisan. Their mission is to represent every frontline worker in the U.S., protect human rights, and preserve the freedom of individual choice. Reporting by Allison Lee,
0: NTD News. And in Twitter news, Elon Musk, the billionaire entrepreneur, said yesterday that allegations made by a Twitter whistleblower should allow him to back out of the deal. Today, Twitter snapped back, calling Musk's latest attempt to scrap the deal invalid and wrongful. The whistleblower, Twitter's former head of security, has thrown out a number of allegations, including that Twitter purposely undercounted the the amount of spam. Musk's lawyers say if what he says is true, then Twitter has breached the merger agreement. Twitter replied to the letter, saying it didn't breach any obligations, insisting it plans to force Musk to go through with the $44 billion deal. And viral videos strike again as thefts of Kia's and Hyundai's have been increasing since a recent trend started on TikTok. NTD's Sean Marshall has more on that.
3: So first, they left my steering wheel lock sitting on the seat just to, you know, rub it in my face probably. Police officers across
12: the country have spent August busy with reports of stolen Hyundai and Kia vehicles. A concerning trend given a boost by a TikTok challenge. Thieves are using USB cables to hijack certain Hyundai and Kia vehicles between 2010 and 2021 model years, according to a release from the Los Angeles Police Department. Targeted vehicles have key-based ignitions rather than the push-button start found in newer vehicles. Former U.S. Senate Chief of Staff Chuck Flint believes it's likely that TikTok algorithms are being manipulated by Beijing to target Americans who could be persuaded to steal the cars. That, that, that then allows them to target specific individuals who might be more susceptible to committing this type of activity. They're profiling Americans using the TikTok app, and then in doing so, they're able to even more narrowly tailor their approach to go after the people that might say, hey, you know what, this is, this is fun. The trend is called the Kia Challenge. It involves thieves filming themselves breaking into a car and taking it for a joyride before dumping it. Flint mentioned this produces a lot of data on Americans and that activities like this never go viral in China. And I think more important for for people to understand is why this is happening it's part of a broader strategy that china has an unrestricted warfare type of strategy against the united states and this is part of it people see it and they say well this is nothing other than just people kind of doing something silly on social media but there's more to it some kia and Hyundai owners in wisconsin filed a lawsuit against the car companies in 2021 And since then, owners from Missouri, Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, and Texas have joined on. It should be noted that progressive insurance won't insure some Kias and Hondas. Kia has issued this response to the trend. Kia America is aware of the rise in vehicle thefts of a subset of trim levels. All 2022 models and trims have an immobilizer applied either at the beginning of the year or as a running change. Sean Marshall, NTD News.
0: And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, California's government wants to set worker wages for the state's fast food industry. The bill is already headed to Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. And one of baseball's most hallowed records is in jeopardy as Yankees star Aaron Judge hits another home run. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down his current pace. That and more coming up. California legislature has passed a bill that, according to the Wall Street Journal, would give the government the power to set fast food worker wages. What do restaurant owners and economists think of this? NTD's Colin Frederickson looks into it.
3: California's legislature has passed a bill that would heavily impact its fast food industry. Namely, it would create a government panel which will decide how much fast food restaurants must pay their workers. Californian politicians will choose who goes on the panel, which will include union representatives, workers, and employers. They want to set wages to be as high as $22 per hour by next year.
13: The initial hit is going to be, uh, you know, uh, almost all the profits are going to di- diminish, disappear overnight until you catch up and even then i'm not sure you know if we're ever going to be as profitable as we are you know pre-pandemic
3: wing lamb is the co-founder of wahoo's fish taco a restaurant chain with over 30 locations in california lamb says he's going to have to raise prices
13: we have two choices we figured out how to you know live with the increases or we move out of california And a lot of
3: companies have. Lamb says restaurant owners outside of California make more money because they don't have to deal with California's regulations.
9: These people don't understand anything about
3: economics and business. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at AIER. Wright believes we'll see a lot of unemployed fast food workers. You will see
9: lots and lots of people trying to get fast food jobs, but not many employers wanting to hire them at that, at that
3: wage. This is a labor demand and supply chart. This line represents labor supply. This line represents labor demand. We have wages on the y-axis and quantity of labor on the x-axis. At the center is the equilibrium wage, where the market causes labor supply and demand to meet. If a government-mandated minimum wage is above the equilibrium, that results in more labor supply than labor demand. In other words, fewer workers.
14: I love how governments think that they can control the world just by, you know, making an edict. But in the end, prices and markets are going to uh, are gonna
3: win out. John Dunham is the president of John Dunham & Associates, an economic research firm. Dunham says that if the minimum wage is too high, all it does is hurt the industry, including the workers in that industry. Governor Gavin Newsom has until September the 30th to either sign or veto the bill. He hasn't publicly taken a stance on it yet. Colin Frederickson, NTD News.
0: And stay in California, sumo wrestling. A niche yet iconic martial art is growing in popularity around the world. And there's a tournament approaching on the West Coast. NTD's Jackie Rios has that story. It's less than two weeks until
15: the U.S. sumo Open. This year, competitors of all kinds are getting ready for the big event in Los Angeles. Training was underway at the Yamamoto Sumo Dojo, established by two-time world champion Yama. He's a pro sumo or rikishi with over 30 years of experience and known as the heaviest sumo wrestler ever. He explained why sumo is so easy to get into.
13: Someone watching sumo for the first time can immediately recognize who won and who lost. Uh, it's really simple and easy and fun for fans to understand
15: those simple rules are the wrestler loses when he exits the ring or touches the ground with any part of his body besides the soles of his feet or if his belt comes loose during a match. Andrew Freund, director of the US Sumo Open, also spoke on the martial arts popularity.
13: And I think a lot of people in other sports like judo or wrestling, football, whatever, transition very well into sumo because it's similar in many ways and it's really fun it's really easy to understand you can come the first day try a practice and it's pretty clear how to win how to lose and then it's just a matter of learning a lot of techniques and refining your sumo over time so it's actually really easy to pick up the basics
15: one of the wrestlers who's a two-time u.s sumo open champion talked about what brought him to compete outside of japan
8: yeah that's why i'm here i came here to win the tournament it's always fun to compete in, like, uh, how do I say, foreigners. I mean, I'm foreigners. Many, many people from all over the country. So they all have their own background.
15: Although professional sumo is only done in Japan, amateur sumo has become more popular as everyone can participate.
13: Normally, like yesterday, we had a kid who's nine years old who's been doing it for three years. We've had people, like I'm in my 50s, we've had people in their 60s and even older do it and actually compete, um, and people of any size.
15: A female heavyweight champion talked about women competing in sports.
1: Oh, of course. There's always a, there's a growing population of women in the U.S. Uh, doing sumo. And the, the beauty of amateur sumo is that it's really for any gender and any weight class. Um, so we have different weight classes anywhere from lightweight to heavyweight. So it's really adverse. I I mean diverse
15: to put amateur sumo to the test NTD's cameraman Adam Lynn volunteered on that day's training
13: your guy Adam he was amazing and he's only about 130 pounds so size gender age are not really limitations um, especially because in international rules amateur rules there are weight classes and there's also classes for both men and women
15: The training starts with participants changing into nothing but a cloth belt, also known as Mawashi. For the actual match, despite the loud slapping and occasional tripping, there are some ground rules. No punching, kicking, choking, or hair pulling. A wrestler may grab hold of the opponent's belt as long as it doesn't touch the groin area. When the games begin, Yama has a simple wish, when asked if his home country will do well in future competitions. I hope so. (laughs) The 22nd annual U.S. Sumo Open will be held on September 10th at Walter Pyramid in Cal State Long Beach from 2 to 4 p.m. Sumo is not just a sport, but a wonderful symbol of Japanese culture. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los
0: Angeles. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories.
16: Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge hit his league-leading 50th home run of the season last night, a solo blast in the eighth inning of a 4-3 loss to the Angels. The home run puts him on pace to finish at 63, which would be two more than Roger Maris's AL record set in 1961. In addition, it would go judge what most baseball pundits would refer to as the clean home run record. The first place New York Yankees have 33 games left this season. In tennis news, Serena Williams won her first round match last night at the US Open, a straight sets win over 80th ranked Donka Kovinic. The win put Serena's record at two and three this year following a 12 month layoff with a leg injury. Her next match is scheduled for Wednesday night. One player absent from this year's tournament is 21-time Grand Slam champion Novak Djokovic, whose vaccination status has kept him from entering the country, at least via airplane. Fox News' Peter Doocy asked the White House about Djokovic's options for entering the country.
7: How come migrants are allowed to come into this country unvaccinated, but world-class tennis players are not?
16: White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded that the government doesn't comment on the medical information of individual travelers and then referred him to the CDC's requirements and the U.S. Open protocols. But Ducey
7: pressed on.
17: I'd refer you to them. They have their own specific protocols as well. So they're two different things. They're two different things.
7: But so how is it two different things? Somebody unvaccinated comes over on a plane, you say that's not okay. somebody walks into texas or arizona unvaccinated they're allowed to stay
8: uh,
17: why but that's not how it works yeah, like we actually no i know
7: that that's not what you guys want to happen but that is what ha- what is happening
17: but that's not it's not like somebody walks over and <laughs> that's not that's, that's not exactly
7: how what's happening we
17: well,
7: thousands of people are walking in a day some of them turn themselves over some of them are caught tens of thousands a week are not that is what is happening
16: Jean-Pierre eventually blamed the previous administration for not completing the wall before offering up a different
7: explanation.
17: That is the U.S. Open that he is part of, and there are CDC uh, federal guidance so, that he is he needs to follow. So
7: why is there a CDC requirement for people that fly here as opposed to people that cross the southern border?
17: Look, we have talked about Title. We have talked about Title 42, right? We not, have.
7: This has nothing to do with Title 42. It is. This title is,
17: 42 is the CDC uh, imperative. And that you is.
7: You guys got rid of it because he said the pandemic.
17: That's is not. not a that big deal is. Anymore. That is
7: not.
16: While Djokovic is at home because of his vaccination status, the NBA has announced all unvaccinated players and team personnel will have weekly COVID tests. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph.
0: Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Peng Shui, famed Chinese tennis star who accused a senior Communist Party official of sexual assault, is she safe? The president of the International Tennis Federation offers his assessment. And as energy prices rise in the UK, a group warns of a life-threatening problem for certain medical patients. That and more when we return.
7: NTD's Capital Report, it's about getting answers, cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the
18: net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for
7: joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here, so
16: you are in the know.
0: The president of the International Tennis Federation says Chinese athlete Peng Shuai appears to be safe. The famed sports star made headlines last year after she accused a senior Communist Party official of sexual assault and disappeared shortly after. The ITF president explained he didn't see her personally but had a video conference with her weeks ago.
2: The president of the international tennis federation david Haggerty, commented thursday on the whereabouts of chinese tennis star peng shui he said he spoke with her six weeks ago through a video call
6: well we had a a video conference and and uh, we were able to talk about um, some experiences we had when we had met before when we had seen each other before in person at some tennis events we talked about that
13: Um, And again, I I, I think uh, I felt comfortable. uh, I will feel more comfortable when I see her in person, uh, you know, when she's traveling and
6: and when tennis opens up in China.
2: Peng Shuai is the former world's number one in women's tennis doubles. She went missing last year after sharing a controversial post on Chinese social media platform Weibo. In it, she accused the former Chinese vice premier of sexual assault. Her post was promptly removed and she disappeared from the public eye for weeks. Her subsequent reappearances were accompanied by Chinese officials. Peng's well-being has since become a global concern, while the Chinese regime says the athlete is fine.
0: And in the U.K., the hospitality sector has been devastated by rising energy bills. Unlike households, businesses don't have an energy price cap and are seeing costs increasing by up to 500%. Some businesses are considering closing for the winter, while others are shutting down for good. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has that story.
18: Businesses hit by the lockdowns are now confronted by a second long round of troubles as energy prices shoot sky high. Pubs like this one behind Boo will now be paying three, four or even five times as much for their bills. To better understand their plight, I spoke with Kate Nichols, CEO of UK Hospitality, a trade body representing around 100,000 venues across Britain.
19: The hospitality sector has been devastated by uh, rising energy bills since the start of this year. We've seen bills increasingly Soaring away from 50 percent in January right up to, to the latest increases in bills have been quoted as being four to five hundred percent increases in the energy bills. That's simply not sustainable. It eliminates the profitability and viability of many of those businesses and really erodes their, their ability to continue trading.
18: Nichols said that about a quarter of their members are reducing the hours they're trading. Some are shutting on certain days of the week. Some are restricting the capacity of their hotel or restaurant, and others are taking out additional loans.
19: And in rural and coastal communities, for our seasonal and tourism-related businesses, then they are looking at the nuclear option of closing down over the winter in order to conserve costs and and, uh, in order to conserve business viability. But obviously that means that they've got a very bleak winter to go through.
18: One business reported that their energy bill jumped by £33,000 for the year. Across the board, they are struggling to find good deals.
19: They can't compare the market, they can't shop around for good deals. The energy suppliers have them over a barrel and therefore you are seeing very high price increases being asked for.
18: Nichols said that in addition, strict conditions are being applied to energy contracts, such as big deposits and trade credit insurance. Millions of extra pounds are being tied up just to secure already expensive contracts
19: it's clear that without additional help from the government to get through this current crisis the danger is that we lose as many businesses and jobs as we did during the 12 to 18 months of COVID so for the next 12 to 18 months as we grapple with the energy crisis that could see as many as 10,000 businesses go to the wall and potentially hundreds of thousands of jobs at risk
18: Nichols said the government needs to get a grip of the energy crisis as a matter of urgency and that the best and simplest way to do this is to get cash to businesses as fast as possible. She said cutting the rate of VAT and extending the business rates holiday would help give them a viable platform from which to grow and develop. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London.
0: And rising energy bills in the UK could cause major problems for those using life-saving dialysis machines at home. That's a warning from a patient advocacy group in Britain called Kidney Care UK.
20: Dawn White says she fears the worsening crisis over home energy bills in the UK, part of the wider energy problems across Europe, could mean she'll no longer be able to afford a life-saving treatment. She uses this dialysis machine five days a week to pump clean blood around her body, replacing the work her kidneys would normally do. Dawn is 59 years old and lives in southeast England. She says her condition will be fatal without intensive use of the machine, which already costs about £200 a month to run. That's roughly 238 US dollars and doesn't include costs of heating and other regular home appliances.
21: My kidneys don't work, so they build up a lot of creatine. Creatine will kill you. So without my machine five times a week, 20 hours, I will die. And every time they put the prices up, although I can reduce what we use in the house to almost nothing, I cannot adjust what this uses. This is standard. This is it. Um, There's no way of saving on this.
20: The energy crisis has hit all of Europe, but the U.K. has been hit particularly hard. An average household bill of £1,277 last year will rocket to more than 3500 pounds this year that's over 4100 dollars according to a forecasting agency called cornwall insight dawn who has renal failure is one of 5000 people who dialyze at home out of 30000 people on dialysis around the country.
21: We're having shorter showers because it's an electric shower. We don't have the telly on for a long time. Um, We all sit in one room in the evening. uh, Therefore, it's only one light, as opposed to all the lights on around the house. Um, We cut back as much as we can.
20: The government's promised action to help those facing the predicament, saying the about six million disabled people in Britain would receive a one-off £150 cost-of-living payment next month. That's on top of other financial help with rising energy bills. If the couple cannot keep up with the higher charges, Dawn will have to receive treatment at the local hospital, which only has capacity to treat her for 12 hours a week. She said that would leave her feeling less well, reduce her independence and potentially make her less viable for a potentially life-saving transplant should her condition deteriorate.
0: Ukraine continues its campaign to retake territory in the south, saying it broke through enemy lines in several places and had rendered key bridges in the occupied areas unusable near the southern city of Kherson. President Zelensky has urged Russian troops to flee for their lives, but Moscow said it had halted the attacks in its tracks and inflicted heavy losses on Kyiv. It comes a day after Russia shelled the nearby port city of Mykolaiv.
22: The Ukrainian army remained largely tight-lipped on details of its counter-offensive to retake southern Ukraine, but said it had rendered key bridges in the occupied areas unusable. Moscow acknowledged the offensive by Ukraine near the city of Kherson, but also said it had failed and that Ukrainians had suffered significant casualties. Meanwhile, Russian shells bombarded the southern port city of Mykolaiv. The city's mayor said homes had been hit and at least two people killed. Reuters spoke to one man who barely survived but lost his wife. I was in this room. I was in this half of the building and I was watching the football review. It hit and the wave went along the side of the house and it didn't destroy it. I was lucky. This latest Ukrainian offensive comes after weeks of bloody stalemate in the war. The conflict broke out when Russian troops poured over Ukraine's borders in February in what Russia calls a special military operation to rid Ukraine of nationalists and protect Russian-speaking communities. Ukraine calls it an unprovoked war of aggression. Thousands have been killed, millions displaced, and the scale of fighting is larger than anything in Europe since World War II. Russia captured much of the South early on. Now Ukraine's using sophisticated Western-supplied weapons to hit Russian ammunition dumps and wreak havoc with supply lines. A spokesperson for Ukraine's Southern Command said Russian forces in southern Ukraine remained quite powerful.
0: Coming up, a six-year-old boy surprises his parents with jaw-dropping talent. Started reading at 18 months, writing at two and a half, and knows multiple languages. That and more after a short break. Every parent thinks their child is a genius. Sebastian surprised his parents by reading and writing at 18 months. That's when his parents knew he was unique.
14: What's the biggest country in the world?
11: Uh, Russia! Meet six-year-old Sebastian, AKA Minnie Einstein. When Sebastian was born, he was without oxygen for three minutes. The doctors thought he could have brain damage, but it's far beyond that. He has a gift. And look. Parents Amanda and Ryan from Albuquerque, New Mexico, noticed his fascination with letters and street signs. At 18 months of age, they noticed Sebastian's speech was delayed. To help with their son interact, the parents used wooden letters and blocks to communicate with him.
14: And one day he just started spelling out words on the floor like cat, dog.
11: He could read 200 words by the age of two. German alphabet? Yeah. The parents went back to the internet to research why exactly their son has this ability to read so young.
17: And that's when we came across hyperlexia.
11: Hyperlexia is also associated with autism. After finding out about this group of children, they realized they were not alone.
17: They all start reading at 18 months, um, writing at two and a half, then their first love is the Russian alphabet. and. Arabic and German and Spanish and then they they all move over to geography and space and it's amazing. All these kids are exactly the same and just like him.
11: His parents decided to nurture their son's jaw-dropping abilities. Sebastian loves engaging in games his parents create for him. At just six years of age, Sebastian has a photographic memory for fonts and logos and can read around 2,000 words, the reading level of an 11th grader. He can
14: write the periodic table of elements by heart, probably like 80% of it without looking. Where does that one go? Like that? He can draw pretty much any flag that that he knows. Around 10 to 15 different alphabets. USC spelling challenge. How about cowboy Cerrone?
11: They created a social media account aptly named Little Einstein to raise awareness of hyperlexia. Maldives. <laughs> While most comments are positive, some comments suggest they are forcing Sweet. their son to learn too early.
14: It's a different level of play for him. Some kids like trucks and dinosaurs, and he just likes that stuff. Mm. There's no try getting, try forcing a five-year-old to eat something they don't want to. You can't force <laughs> them to no do mom. that. So.
11: Sebastian faces some difficulty expressing thoughts and with some basic life skills. But watching him learn and grow in other areas makes his family proud. They learn new things from Sebastian every day about geography, alphabets and the periodic table. But the most important lesson they offer their little Einstein is the value of acceptance and kindness. It's okay
17: to be who he is. That he doesn't have to be like everyone else.
14: <laughs> that, you know, there's, a, there's different people in the world and not everybody's going to be the same, you know, so just don't judge people for, you know, being different. That is Adios. Adios.
0: And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.